Hey everyone, and welcome to this edition of Sunshine Boys Podcast. I'm Jim Williams, your host. Joined, of course, by the Sunshine Boys themselves, Ira Kaufman, Joe Henderson. Tim Williams is joining us from Boston. And joining us from New York is Rich Cimarello. Rich, of course, is our outstanding college football analyst. And with only oh a little over a month and a half before the start of college football season, Rich, I'll tell you what, you've got to be amped up with uh, the two big games coming, and they include Florida schools, uh, Florida, Michigan, Florida State, Alabama. Uh, talk, if you will, a little bit about those two games. Yeah, I mean, you know, you talk Sunshine State. I, I think there's a lot of talent always, uh, Florida, Florida State, Miami. I think all three programs are very intriguing. Florida adds a transfer quarterback of Malik Zaire, potentially the best Gator quarterback uh, going back to Tim Tebow. Florida State loaded with talent. I think this is Jimbo's best team in the past couple of seasons. Derwin James, the safety he returns after missing all of last year with an injury. DeAndre Francois, now a sophomore after playing as a rookie last year. And Miami, now you have Mark Rick's second season. Tons of talent, more talent than I've seen in a long time, particularly along that defensive line. But they have a major question at quarterback now that Brad Kaya made that uh, somewhat ill-timed decision to go to the NFL. So in terms of Florida alone, a lot of really good storylines. Ira, Joe? I got a question for Rich, uh, Jimmy. Uh, Rich, uh, in the wake of uh, the 2017 draft, which I think we'd all agree, uh, was bereft of uh, top-notch quarterbacks. I mean, let's be honest. Uh you know, the the Chiefs traded up for Mahomes, but Mahomes had, you know, he's got very little portfolio. So, Rich, my question is, looks like the Jets are already tanking. Uh, you know, that that's the logical explanation for what they're doing. Uh, and unlike the NBA, if, if you got the worst record in the NFL, you, you get the first pick. Uh, Rich, projecting ahead, uh, are there any Andrew Luck types, Jameis Winston, Mariota, uh, types that are going to be available uh, in the 18 draft? I, I think there is. Uh, and, and I always hesitate to do this, you know, almost a year in advance of the draft. You know, I, I, I use Christian Hackenberg as an example. You go back to his high school days or his first day or first year with Bill O'Brien at Penn State, and everybody was projecting ahead that he was going to be a top overall draft choice. He's going to be a franchise quarterback. So I think we're all guilty of that at times. The name that keeps jumping out in terms of that, you know, Andrew Luck-esque kind of quarterback is out at USC with Sam Darnold. Didn't even start last year. uh, Kind of gave way to Max Brown in the opener, but then he took over and really carried that uh, USC program uh, has a big-time arm, better-than-expected mobility, very savvy and smart kid in the pocket, just a redshirt sophomore this season. But I think he jumps to the NFL. That's the one guy that really stands out in terms of being that next-level, top overall draft choice. Beyond that point, I think it's a good crop of quarterbacks this year, guys, in terms of really solid college quarterbacks. You look at Jake Browning at Washington. Lamar Jackson at Louisville, the reigning Heisman winner. Kids like Luke Falk at Washington State. Uh, Baker Mayfield at Oklahoma. I just don't know if any of those kids rise to the level of being a top 10 overall pick in the NFL. But the name to watch is going to be Sam Darnold. The hype is real. I think he has the potential to be that kind of a real blue-chip quarterback. Joe? I I would ask... uh... Rich, a question. Go back to uh, Malik Zaire uh, coming to Florida. Um, You say he has the potential to be the best quarterback uh, at UF since Tim Tebow. But is he healthy? I mean, he had a lot of injury problems at Notre Dame. And he never quite broke through to that potential everybody says he has. Why should Florida fans think he can do it now? Yeah, I've actually had a chance to talk to him since the beginning of the year during this process, really sort of, you know, vetting out where he is mentally, where he is physically. Of course, you know, how much do you believe he's he's obviously going to give you the 
you know, the version that best suits him tells me that he is 100% healthy, clean bill of health. He has had a long break away from the game, which I think benefits him. Only played sparingly last year as Deshaun Kaiser's caddy. Uh, it's been a while since he hurt that ankle, right? I mean, it'll be almost two years when this year's opener begins. So I think he's healthy, spent a lot of time in Arizona working with quarterback gurus, working on his mechanics. I think he's the kid that, that wins that job over Felipe Franks. Malik is a very smart kid, very good athlete, strong arm. You know, you look at the left-handed athlete, sort of reminds you of a poor man's Michael Vick. I think he's ready to go, and I certainly can hear in his voice the fact that he recognizes this is his potential salary run season. So if he's going to have a shot in the NFL, he's going to have to use Gainesville as that launching pad. I think he's ready. And I think when you look at those receivers, guys, someone like Antonio Callaway, you look at Cleveland on the outside, they have a lot of talent and a lot of speed. And if Zaire can step up, learn that offense, develop some chemistry with those receivers, we might actually have a, a, a passing game to deal with in the SEC at Florida. Tim? You know, Florida, they should be much improved on in the passing game, but I do wonder about their defense. They lost their defensive coordinator, Jeff Cameron, and a load of defensive players over the offseason to the draft, including both of their cornerbacks, Wilson and Tabor. So what should we expect from the Gators on that side of the ball? Because it seems like there's a lot of turnover on the defensive side. There always seems to be, right? I, I mean, you know, this is, this is one of those programs that recruits and develops defensive talent so well that, you know, rarely do the top-end Gators last till the, till the senior season. You know, Vernon Hargraves leaves two years ago, and then we have Tabor and Wilson. I, I, I think... The version in the secondary in terms of the next-level kid, I think, will be Duke Dawson. I have high expectations. He's someone who has bounced around, safety, nickelback, plays corner this year, and I think he prepares for his NFL opportunity. And, you know, one name I'll throw out to you is Jabari Zuniga. Uh, he and C.C. Jefferson up front, I think, will be a dynamic duo. Zuniga sort of uh, scratched the surface last year as a first-year player. I think he blows up this season. Is the defense as good as they were over the past couple of seasons? Maybe not, but this is Florida, and Florida has done defense so well over the past couple of seasons. I just don't see a major drop-off. Having said that, if there is any kind of a drop-off, I think that's even more of an impetus for that offense to finally begin to pick up a little more of the slack. Rich, uh, I noticed um, in your initial rundown here, you, you talked about Florida, Florida State, and Miami. Um, do you believe the hype, uh, and there's a lot of it, uh, for USF this year, a lot of people think they're going to be the team that emerges out of the, the so-called group of five to, uh, to maybe contend for a major bowl. Yeah. I mean, that's a fascinating question, uh, because of the coach, you know, we know who the quarterback is, Quentin Flowers, I think he's going to get a lot of national attention. If you're looking for a fringe group of five type Heisman contender. Quinton certainly has the credentials. He has the physical ability to do that. You know, Marlon Mack is gone. I think they'll be fine. I think someone like Dearness Johnson can step up and, and fill some of the void. Not as good, not as physical, not the kind of feature back as Marlon Mack. I think the bigger concern I have right now is is the staff. I, I mean, if, if Willie Taggart was still there, you would have that continuity with the staff. I'd have less concerns. And I like Charlie Strong as a coach, even though he failed at Texas. But to me, it's just how quickly does he adapt to that talent? How quickly can his systems be implemented? Uh, and can they run through an American schedule, which has really gotten thorny over the past couple of years? That's a really good conference. It's probably the best of the group of five conferences right now. So there's going to be a lot of pressure on Quentin Flowers to carry the offense. You got some good defensive talent like Augie Sanchez, Deatrick Nichols, uh, Deadron Stenat up front. So there's a lot of defensive talent. But I really want to know can this coaching staff adapt to the talent and really elevate them to the point where they run the table in 2017? Hey, Rich, speaking of USF, um, it was big news down here a couple of weeks ago. 
when uh, a man walked through the gates uh, of a USF practice named uh, Nick Saban. And um, he made a rare venture into the Bay Area for a uh, satellite camp uh, spot. And, Rich, this is a guy who railed against the very notion, uh, said it was hurting college football. But, Rich, what's the future uh, of these satellite camps? And uh, and is it, a, is it a case where, you know, you might not want really uh, be in favor of it, but if everybody else is doing it, uh, you've got to do it, and, and where else to start but in uh, sunny Florida? Yeah, I, I think you nailed it right there. I, I mean, Nick Saban, you know, he, he will deride satellite camps, but at the end of the day, if you want to remain competitive from a recruiting standpoint, that's something that you're going to have to participate in. I, I think when you look forward into the future – I don't see satellite camps going away. I, I, I think there's a benefit to the kids. I think the kids have an opportunity to get in front of coaches from different regions of the country. And, and really, I, I don't see the problem with it. I, I, I think this is something that is beneficial to the programs, beneficial to the kids. There are certain coaches in certain regions that want to protect their own territory. They want to kind of cordon it off. And I just don't think that's the way the system works. So I, I, I expect to see satellite camps flourish in the future, and I don't have a problem with it. Hey, Rich, quick question on um, someone we all know and he's uh, a good guy. Uh, Bob Stoops stepping down at Oklahoma. What, uh, what, pre- what caused the um, big game Bob to, uh, to hang it up uh, at Oklahoma? Here was my take, Jim. I, I, I think if, if it had happened in December, I wouldn't have been the least bit surprised. I had gotten right. the impression, you know, over the past couple of years, he was at the same university for almost two decades, uh, wildly successful, 10 Big 12 titles, wins the national championship at the beginning of the century. I, I was with Bob a couple of years ago down in Atlanta both he and his wife, and you kind of got the sense that that spark had left him. I thought then, this was 2015, that, you know, maybe he was going to dabble in the NFL. I don't think he would obviously go to a different college program. Maybe it was time to try something different, but I don't care who you are, whether you're a, a college coach or an accountant or a plumber. At some point, if you do something for 20 years, you're going to get a little burnt out. So I've been waiting each December to kind of hear this news. The fact that it happened in June. That, for me, was the big surprise. I, I, I think he was ready. I think he's ready to move on to a different part of his life, maybe spend more time with his family. He's got a beautiful family. But deciding in June, that was the really curious part to me. Now, behind the scenes, it sounds as if they've been grooming Lincoln Riley to be, you know, we used to use the term coach-in-waiting. Thankfully, we don't do that any longer. But Lincoln Riley, I think the university thought was going to be the successor. But again, I think it was the timing that was a surprise. After signing day, I I mean, I don't know if kids would have changed their decision to go to Oklahoma based on that information, but I think it would have been nice to know that the head coach was going to be changing four months after signing your name. Well, staying uh, staying in the Big 12 for a second, and new coaches, you're you're looking at a very interesting situation in Texas with Tom Herman. Charlie Strong, by all accounts, left the cupboard in Texas. Yep. Uh, is this a team that has their guy, in your opinion, and is ready to take that big step into the top ten? Yeah, I, I really believe so. I, I'm a big believer in Tom Herman, followed him very closely as an assistant coach, most recently at Ohio State, was very successful with the quarterbacks uh, under the watch of Urban Meyer, goes to Houston, has uh, instant success, although there were some hiccups along the way. I think we all expected more from the Cougars last year, and they stumbled a couple of times during the season, but Tom Herman is young, he's aggressive, he recruits very well, which is going to be necessary in the state of Texas. And the Longhorns have sort of, they've lost their vice grip on that state. You know, they've lost, uh, you know, to places like Baylor and Texas Tech and and Texas A&M. They've had some trouble keeping some of their best recruits in Austin. 
But I think Tom Herman, with his offensive ingenuity, his ability to work with quarterbacks, and quarterback play has been a problem in recent years for the Longhorns. I think that will benefit their program. Excellent point in terms of the cupboard because, you know, Charlie had been recruiting very well, but he wasn't developing talent. The product that got to the field, when you look at the special teams, when you look at the offensive line, at times the defense, which was supposed to be his strong suit, they really were not a cohesive unit, but there is a lot of individual talent. Shane Bouchelle is back for his second season. Very intrigued by a running back by the name of Chris Warren. Chris's dad used to play in the NFL for the Seattle Seahawks. He is the successor now to Deontay Foreman, big, 240, 250-pound back that can motor and was off to a great start last season before getting injured. So there is top-notch talent up and down that roster. It's going to be interesting to see if Tom Herman can sort of get them moving in the right direction quickly. If so, I think there's a possibility that Texas could contend for a Big 12 title. Is there a tougher coaching job in America than Texas, though? I mean, seriously. Well, in terms of the pressure, when you look at boosters, the expectations at this point, which might be unrealistic, uh, I would certainly throw Notre Dame into that category in terms of difficult coaching jobs. But Texas today, I think it's got to be about as tough as it can get. And, and Charlie's three years, you know, with the Longhorns did not make that situation any better. Hey, Rich, I got a question about a coach that's uh, very familiar to uh, Bay Area uh, football fans. Um, to put it kindly, Rich, his first year in college did not go particularly well. Uh, that man is Lovey Smith, Rich. Um, the fighting Ill Illini did not fight very hard yeah. <laughs> in 2016. Uh Rich, uh, do they have any talent? Uh, it seems like uh, the knock on Lovey here in Tampa, Rich, was that he was stubborn, set in his ways, and using concepts that might have worked 15 years ago and sort of the game's passing them by. Well, what's going on uh, in Illinois? The reports that I got out of Champaign last year uh, were not complimentary at all when it comes to Lovey Smith. Uh, in fact, what I was being told was uh, was not enjoying his stay at the university, was not enjoying a return to the college game for the first time in many, many years, as you guys know. And one of the things that stood out to me, which was a concern, and gives me the feeling that this might be a rather short marriage with the Illini, is that he had communication problems with his kids. He, 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 has, he has had a difficult time evidently making the transition from dealing with men, dealing with professional athletes, and dealing in many cases with 18- and 19-year-old kids, that he did not have an open-door policy, that the kids, especially the underclassmen, did not feel that Lovey Smith was approachable. And I think that's something that's going to – grow very thin if it continues, if he's not able to change his style, if he's not able to adapt to the college kids, especially at a program that has been so bad for so long in the Big Ten. And as I looked up and down the roster of the Illini, you know, there isn't talent that screams out anything better than four and eight or five and seven this season. So if he's going to be a bit of a curmudgeon, when it comes to the kids that he inherited, and they continue to lose, I don't think this is going to have a happy ending for what I believe is a very good football coach. Sticking with the Big Ten. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, sticking with the Big Ten, it seems like there's a lot of hype out of the Eastern Division of the Big Ten between Penn State, who made their Rose Bowl run last year, Ohio State, who's projected as one of the favorites to contend for, you know, larger things this year. And, of course, Jim Harbaugh's Michigan program. Now, these are big programs that tend to deal in hype. And the Big Ten has always come into a lot of seasons and been a bit hyped up for what it really is. But 
Is this for real? Is the Big Ten East really as brutal as it looks? Because it looks like it might give the SEC West a run for its money right now. It's funny you say that. That was exactly where I was going to go. I I think you can have that argument. I would still lean towards the SEC West because you have the best program in the country in Alabama, and I think you have better depth from top to bottom. I would take SEC West over Big Ten East, but Big Ten East is really beginning to gain ground. Ohio State. I think makes a run for the national championship this season. Uh, the addition of a new offensive coordinator and Kevin Wilson, I think, will really help JT Barrett, will really help the skill. He inherits, obviously, better talent than he had with the Indiana Hoosiers. Uh, Penn State, man, that offense is going to be exciting. I, I know they have some holes on defense. They're going to need new pass rushers. But when you start with Trace McSorley, a mad bomber behind center, Saquon Barkley, who I believe, uh, by a razor hair margin over Darius Geis at LSU, I think Saquon Barkley is the best running back in America. And I think you could also say that they might have the best tight end in the country in Mike Gesicki, who is going to be a senior this season. Gesicki and Troy Fumagalli from Wisconsin, they probably go head-to-head to determine the best tight end. So Penn State... Second year with Joe Moorhead as the offensive coordinator, fantastic offense. you got two real top ten powerhouses. The question mark for me is going to be Michigan. And, and we've all watched the, you know, somewhat of the silliness and the histrionics of Jim Harbaugh. He's done a very good job at this point, continues to recruit well. But, man, they lost a ton of talent, particularly on the defensive side of the ball. So out of that trio – my biggest concern is with Michigan. Can they backfill quickly enough? They've got the veteran quarterback in Wilton Spate, but holes up and down that roster. So the first half of the season, I wouldn't be surprised if Michigan stumbles once or twice as they adapt to the new personnel. You know, you mentioned uh, the SEC West, and we all know, you know, just how loaded uh, that division is. But there's been a lot of talk about maybe have an Auburn and Missouri swap and have Auburn go uh, to the east. Missouri would be a much more logical geographic fit in the west. How do you see that playing out? Yeah, I mean, I like it. I, I tend to be a little bit rigid when it comes to you know the breakdowns of divisions and even the breakdowns of conferences. Uh, maybe I need to to do a better job of getting used to West Virginia being in the Big 12, but that sort of stuff never really sat well with me. I, I, I think the SEC would be better balanced if you took a program like Auburn, which I think traditionally you look in the past and you look out to the future, Auburn is going to be a better uh, football program than Missouri year in and year out. So I think if you took the Tigers, put them in the East, put them alongside a rival like Georgia, put them with Florida year in and year out, uh, you know, put them with Tennessee. I'd have no problem with it. I think it's kind of fun to mix things up a little bit. I, I, from a geographic standpoint, makes sense. Uh, put Mizzou out west. I, I like it. I, I think if you could balance those divisions, I mean, the west has dominated for so long. I think for just a competitive balance standpoint, I, I would actually dig that move. It's funny, there used to be a guy in Tampa by the name of Joe Adcock who somehow or another used to sneak kids uh, out of the Tampa Bay area in the back of um, station wagons and roll them to the plains. Uh, and suddenly you'd look up and go, wait a minute, this kid you know, played over at Hillsborough or Chamberlain and now he's playing at Auburn. How did he get there? And uh, Joe Adcock used to be the the chief recruiter for some reason down in the in the bay area when it came to getting kids to auburn but uh um, hey rich uh, rich how's alabama's defense uh projected this year um it, it seems to me as great as the tide have been uh there are games rich there are right. games every year two three games where yeah. where the defense doesn't show up rich yeah. they don't show up and when they don't yeah, show up I, they're, they're yeah, really bad think, on those days. We hold them to a very high standard, don't we? I, I mean, I, I, I think they're, you know, they're, they're as dominant a defense that there is in the country year in and year out. It's kind of funny we bring up Alabama. I was talking to a close contact of mine who was in Tuscaloosa just watching some voluntary practices last night, and he texted me and he said, 
he was watching the secondary players like like Minka and Hootie Jones and Ronnie Harrison, and he said, "By God, these guys are so big and so fast. It almost seems unfair that they're still playing at the college level." And 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 I think that's the case really at each level of the defense. The secondary in particular, I think, will be airtight, led by Minka again this season. Ronnie Harrison is a safety who's coming on fast, and Anthony Averett. Uh, the cornerback, I think, will be playing on Sundays as well. If you want to sort of split hairs with Alabama this year, you know, you go to the two key losses. Someone's going to have to step up from a leadership and a physical standpoint for Jonathan Allen up front, for Reuben Foster at the second level. I would expect to see potential breakout years out of kids like Sean Dion Hamilton, who got hurt at the end of last year. He's at the second level at linebacker. And then up front, a couple of a uh, couple of kids, Deron Payne, defensive tackle, talked to Alabama. They're talking very highly of him, uh, nominating him for some national awards. And Deshaun Hand, former five-star recruit, can't-miss type player, has been quiet in his first couple of seasons. Now he gets his opportunity to fill the void of Jonathan Allen. We'll be very curious to see if he can have his salary run season. One more quick one, Rich, on, on Alabama. What can Buck fans expect? Uh, Rich, from uh, O.J. Howard uh, this fall. Yeah, just dynamic. I I think we talked about him prior uh, to the draft, guys. He is a unique tight end from the standpoint that he could bust through the seams of defenses. He's very athletic, sure hands. He's an explosive receiver. What I like, though, guys, is he really is a complete tight end in an era where we really don't have as many complete tight ends. We have a lot of pass catchers. We have a lot of seam busters. We have a lot of playmakers. But O.J. Howard will also contribute in the running game. He's a skilled blocker, was taught very well. You know, you hate to do this to a kid who has yet to step on the field, but if I want to project out, O.J. Howard looks to me like a future Pro Bowl tight end. Rich, I know you've got to get going here soon, so let me um, just throw one last one at you, and that is – I guess the usual suspects for the uh, run for the national championship, and perhaps uh, give us a dark horse. Yeah, no, I, I think I think we've reached a point, Jim, where we are at absolute usual suspect stage. Each year, we're going to talk about Alabama, we're going to talk about Ohio State, Florida State, Oklahoma, uh, USC. Interesting, Clemson. Can they defend their title without Deshaun Watson? Big void at quarterback, but a lot of talent, especially on the offensive and defensive line. If you want to look at quasi-dark horse, and I don't think we can get too deep these days, but I'm really intrigued by Auburn. Love the speed on the team. Love the skill position talent. Cameron Petway is back in the backfield. you got Cameron Petway and Kerryon Johnson, so Gus should be able to run the ball. But everything I hear this offseason – about Jared Stidham is so, so positive. Former Baylor quarterback, kind of a dual threat despite being a big kid, played well in his first season with Baylor under Art Bryles, got hurt at the end of the year, transferred and did not play last year, but he has been spectacular this offseason. So Gus Malzahn might finally have that quarterback that unlocks all of the potential of his offense. If that happens... Auburn could be a bit of a fly in the ointment out of the SEC West. How can we uh, follow you and, and stay in touch with you, Rich? Yeah, Twitter's always great. I love uh, love social media, uh, at Rich Thurmanello. It's uh, C-I-R-M-I-N-I-E-L-L-O. I know it's a mouthful, but uh, would certainly love to hear from you. Outstanding. Well, Rich, thanks for joining us, and we'll let you, we'll let you pop off here and uh, – Come back and see us anytime, by all means. Terrific. Thanks, guys. Hey, thank you. Well, Rich is on his way. He's given us a, a lot to uh, ponder, uh, guys. And um, That man knows his stuff, uh, Jimmy. Knows yeah, his stuff. he does. And um, he actually had an interview going uh, this morning, and uh, we, um, we were lucky enough to get a hold of him, and uh, he's always entertaining, and uh, he'll be back. So... He can't get he can't get rid of us that simply. But uh, uh, you know the other thing, the the one thing I didn't ask because it was kind of an off topic. But uh, this whole UCF thing with the kicker and and YouTube, I think, is kind of a bizarre setup over there, huh? 
Yeah, the NCAA looks really petty over this, um, but what else is new, right? Um, it's now they're what they're they're checking to see if he's profiting off the website because it's like, come on, guys, you know, the NCAA and UCF and and all of that is certainly profiting off uh, of the football team and by extension uh, that young man. So. Don't they have more important things to worry about? Seriously? I would think so. It's almost like a form of identity theft where you can't profit off your own likeness at all because the NCAA apparently owns that. I I didn't see how that was in any scholarship or any deal anyone signs to go to college. That's all surprising to me. And the NCAA's pettiness is not surprising to me, but that they can pull this kind of a move to the point where even your name seems to belong to the NCAA for as long as you're under scholarship. That just seems that that seems a little bit too far. And if the NCAA is going to have this much power, are we sure this is the organization that deserves it? Are we sure they're using it correctly? Well, I mean, that's a great point. And and you go back even to the video game controversy where um, they were using the the images of I think it was former basketball players um, yeah. to and and without compensating them and and saying well we own those you know you don't you don't get anything for it and it's it's like these guys had were long since out of school and everything and it's like. At what point does the NCAA go so far that somebody really brings the hammer down on them, uh, takes a case to the Supreme Court, whatever it's going to take, and and gets some order back into this thing? The the NCAA is a money machine. That's all they really exist for or care about. And you know what? Um, if you want to read some insightful stuff about the NCAA, and I, I, this just popped in my head, go Google some stuff that Jeff Billis has said about uh, that fine organization, and uh, it'll open your eyes. It really will. What's the highest punishment the NCAA seems to dole out? Lack of institutional control. I feel like that could be the organization's slogan at this point. They're, yeah, it sounds like their mission statement. They don't protect their players, and you can look at almost any of these scandals, the large ones like what just went on at Baylor. If the NCAA has this much power and they're not able to effectively police any of these programs from doing essentially whatever they want until someone catches them in public then what are they good for besides making money? Clearly, they're very good at that. And that's what every, you know, the rising tide that lifts all boats that the that is the NCAA, except, of course, the players. And I, I wonder when we approach that breaking point, because it seems like we've been angling for it for a long time. You know, there, there's a funny, funny story that I think is illustrative of how the NCAA approaches um, what they consider to be their property, which is basically, you know, everybody in, in college sports. If you, if you go to a um, tournament basketball game, right. And I've been to many and they've got the little media area back away from the court. and, And, you know, we're, we're seated generally courtside. And so, if you walk out holding a soda bottle, right, which which is furnished back there in, in the media hospitality room, they will stop you and make you pour the contents into an officially sanctioned NCAA cup. And I've, I've had them do it to me. They have signs in the hallway that warn you that you, the only thing you're allowed to have on that on your work table, if you're going to be drinking water or soda or whatever, is an officially licensed NCAA cup. And they mean business on that. And that's, that's called product placement, Mr. Henderson. Product well, placement. 
uh, you know, and I know a lot of marketing people would say, well, okay, but it seems petty. And uh, that, I guess, if you follow the logical extension of that philosophy, you end up with the NCAA and what we see happening over at UCF. Well, I mean, we can go back to the days, I mean, uh, when Chris Weber was at the University of um, you know, Michigan and uh, was having lunch and basically was picking up the stuff he could he wanted for lunch, got to the point where he was up at the counter and he'd come up a bit short. And the guy who ran the restaurant wanted to let him go and he said, no, I can't do that. I don't want to get myself in trouble. So he put back a bag of potato chips or something as small as that, took his sandwich, walked outside, went around the corner in there, and his, um, his jersey in the uh, bookstore selling for $85. And uh, his name's not on the back. It's just, you know, the jersey. But uh, clearly the university makes a fortune off these guys. And this, you know, this kid doesn't want to get in trouble with the NCAA by not, uh, you know, taking somebody who wants to give him a bag of potato chips. Yeah, uh, and... Jim, 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 we would be remiss. We would be remiss. And Henderson doesn't want to be remiss in this Ever. podcast. Uh, if we don't spend a couple of minutes, Jim, on, yeah. uh, base, on baseball, and, and I would say focusing on the juggernaut San Francisco Giants, who are... Uh, <laughs> Who are on pace? Who are on pace for a hundred, not a hundred wins, a hundred losses, James? Yes, uh, sir. And uh, the Reds, not much better, Joseph. I don't want to hear you piping in. Uh, so, Jim, uh, uh, just a little bit, just a little bit on the national pastime. I think is in order, just a little. No, no absolutely. Um, always love to talk baseball. Um, uh, I, I saw your your Nats. Uh, your Nats lost a brutal game last night. Is that correct? That's they've lost some. That's how they lose. It's brutal. It's whatever. It's uh that one. That one. Uh, you know that was on Tanner Roark. You can't can't blame the bullpen on that one. Uh, he has not, for whatever reason, been able to. Um, his past three outings have not been good, and there's got to be something physically wrong with them because he's not that bad of a pitcher. And uh, so we'll see. But you know, you've got to. You can't let that kind of stuff you know, happen, and they, last night they had it, so, and look, I'll tell you what, if those aren't the two best hitting teams in baseball, I don't want to see them, um, because those guys were just raking all night long, and either they have, they both have terrible pitching, or they both have, you know, or they can both hit, or maybe they're somewhere in between, but it was a, yeah, it was a painful thing to watch uh, from a national standpoint, because they blew a 6 nothing lead, and then they blew a 7-6 lead. You know, the, team, the team that's hanging in there, Joe, uh, tell me what you think about this team. We always dismiss them. You know, sometimes they get off to a pretty good April or May. We say they're going to fade. Well, Joe, here we are, you know, a couple of weeks from the All-Star break. They're not fading. It, the Colorado Rockies, Joe, can they hold off the Dodgers and the Arizona in a uh, very competitive NL West? Sure. I, I, that's not the same as saying I think they will. I think the Dodgers are just playing terrific baseball right now. But the Rockies are, you know, 20 games over 500, and we're only, in, you know, uh, heading into the latter part of June. They got um, a heck of a road record, Joe. Colorado's very strong on the road. Surprising. Well, yeah. Uh, but here's what they're doing is, is they're we, – we, the Rockies always hit, right, because of that, that – where they play, I think inflates their offensive numbers a little bit, but their pitching has been just surprisingly good this year. And with, with, when you add those two together, you know, and then they have a, a, a an excellent uh, defense besides that, you've got a, you've got three elements that you bring to the ballpark every night that can win a game for you. And, you know, when you do that, you're, you're going to be in contention. Um, but don't count out uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks. They're playing great baseball. That, is a, that, that division is loaded. And uh, somebody, a, a very good team is going to lose out 
there in the end, I think, uh, because, you know, they, I don't think they're all going to make the playoffs. So, you know, um, just sit back and watch, enjoy, because it's going to be you fun. Know, you know, yeah, Tim, if, if, Tim, if Nolan Arenado played for the Red Sox, I dare say uh, there might be a statue of him uh, off the freeway. Um, nobody knows about this guy. Uh, he, he is sensational, Timothy. Well, you say that, but outside of Boston, I don't think Mookie Betts has a whole lot of play either. I, I don't know if they have the national poll that they had a few years ago themselves, but back to the Rockies. The Rockies are here to stay. The only real question is their rotation is extremely young. They don't have any pitchers over 27 years old. And that can be great, but it also means a lot of guys will be approaching their innings limit in about August, or at least a career high in innings in about August. So it it remains to be seen how they'll pitch down the stretch, but I love their bullpen. I think they have one of the better ones in the National League, which sets them a little bit ahead of the Diamondbacks, who still have Fernando Rodney closing games. And... Other than that, the Diamondbacks have a fantastic lineup. They have a better pitching rotation than Colorado in terms of Zach Greinke has been there before, and they have some other guys with experience. But Colorado's lineup, Nolan Arenado, is every bit as good as people say. Charlie Blackman has been excellent this year for them. I don't see them fading. I think the Dodgers are an extremely good team and could still just overpower that division. But I think people have been waiting for Colorado to fade, and you can keep waiting because unless these pitchers all melt down, I don't see them going away anytime soon. This is exactly the team they've built, and they're having a great season in in Colorado. And the fact that they're doing so well away from home should also underline that they're here to stay. It's not just a Coors Field thing. It's not just an early start thing, especially in that tough division. You know, real quick, I was just going to say, real quick, on your point about the Rockies, um, you know, seven teams, including the Washington Nationals, took a pass on Greg, um, their closer, Greg Holland. And, um, man, does he look good. Now, if you add in the Nationals, Jim, and if the Cubs ever straighten out, which mm-hmm. I think they will, uh, boy, Joe, that, that would set the scene for a sensational uh, National League postseason. I mean, it would be fabulous. Well, I'm sure it would, but, but you just raised a great question. Um, you know, just as we look at the Rockies right now, we say, well, uh, we're this late into the season, and, you know, it looks like they're they, – you know, we have to accept that this is a contending team. Do we likewise have to look at the Chicago Cubs and go, well, we're this late into the season and it looks like they're a 500 ball club. Uh, they have just not been able to get out of their own way this year. And everybody can, you know, you, you sit back and, well, they're, you know, they've got all these guys and they're going to be fine and Joe Madden and all that. But the truth is that they're a pretty average baseball team right now. And uh, you don't just – wave a wand and, and fix that. Um, they are fortunate to be in a an ex- extremely mediocre division. Uh, the Milwaukee Brewers are, are hanging in there, but I don't think anybody really believes that they're in this for the long haul. Uh, Pittsburgh, I don't think it's enough juice to get back into it. The Cardinals are a mess. And uh, hush your mouth about my Reds, okay? But um, the... Uh, so the Cubs should win that division, but is that going to be enough to satisfy everybody after uh, what they did last year? Uh, I would put them well behind uh, the uh, the top teams in the National League right now. I, I don't see them uh, as a threat to uh, repeat at this point. I don't starting think they have a good pitching. Yeah, I was going to say, Tim, you're right. The starting pitching is terrible. John Lackey is it, it looks like John Lackey has seen better days. He is not filling a spot in their rotation. John Lester is doing all right. He's ostensibly their ace right now, but that also means that guys like Jake Arrieta and Kyle Hendricks are taking a step back from the stellar form they've been in in the last couple of years. So I don't think they were expecting it would fade this quickly. I think if you looked at their roster coming into the season – 
that would be the one thing you might have circled is to see how their pitching rotation keeps going. And I think it's been a little surprising that Arietta in particular has struggled as much as he has. We keep waiting for the Cubs to right the ship, and it, like you said, it's a very weak division, so they could easily win this division without really righting the ship. Although, credit where it's due, the Brewers are hanging in there. Their record isn't fantastic as division leaders go, but they also weren't expected to be anywhere near where they are, so they're going to give the Cubs a run for their money, provided the Cubs don't turn on the Jets, but... In terms of midseason deals ahead, I don't see anyone the Cubs can go out and get that would fix their pitching rotation and put them back to juggernaut status. And that means we might be looking at the Cubs team we're going to see the rest of the year. I, I think that's a good thought to consider. Jim, is well, you know, the in interesting mind? about the Cubs uh, and their pitching problems, I would have thought that given the, the connection Joe Madden has with the, with the Rays, that trying to go get maybe an Alex Cobb or somebody like that at the trade deadline would have made a lot of sense. The Rays are, even though they, they did not play well uh, in losing um, to the awesome Cincinnati Reds last night, they, the Rays are in contention and they're, they're going, they've had a lot of guys hurt Well, they're starting to get some of those guys back and they can hit a ton and if they can get their bullpen straightened out, which is the biggest problem, they can, even in a division with the Red Sox and Yankees, they're going to, you're going to have to deal with them. So that's a kind of a long-winded way of saying, I think the Rays don't necessarily become sellers at the all-star break and they've got what the Cubs need. And so if the Cubs want some of it, then they're, they're going to have to part with a lot more than I'll bet they're willing to. Ira has been trying to get in for the last 10 minutes, so let's get him, give well, him a chance. No, I, I was just going to ask Mr. James Williams, a keen, keen observer of all things. Uh, You're going to regret this, Jim. Uh, <laughs> I, I can Jim, tell Jim, it right is, now. Is there, any doubt, is there any doubt in your mind, sitting there in your Maryland uh, <laughs> beautiful home, uh, that your Nats uh, are going to have to pick up the phone uh, sometime in the next uh, five weeks, and uh, you know, send a prospect to one of these bottom feeders um, and get them get themselves some uh, bullpen help. Is there any question about that, Jim? Not at all. They're already in talks um, with Oakland and um, a couple of other teams. Uh, so they uh, basically, Dusty Baker was very outspoken, and normally you don't see that happen, but. Dusty was open, uh, telling Mike Rizzo, you know, I don't want to wait around till the uh, to the trade deadline to get somebody, um, and so they are on a mission to go find someone. And uh, so, no, you're absolutely 100% right. They don't have the bullpen right now to, um, you know, once a playoff would begin, that would be. Uh, a very scary situation because last night, anybody who watched the uh, the game against the Marlins, you could tell that was, um, you know, you don't want to get into that uh, situation too often. But they've blown 17 saves this year. That's a that's an amazing amount of saves to blow. Yeah, that's a reprehensible number, and that's not sustainable for a team that believes it, it should be a World Series contender. You, they, they have to do something. But the question becomes, what do you give up? And, you know, teams know that, you know, you have that window and they're going to hold you hostage and uh, you're going to have, you're like, next year, you're going to have, you have to make the move like they did to uh, get Araldus Chapman. And they gave up a lot uh, and you may have to do something similar. And have Mark Melanson back, Jimmy. You want him back? Just uh, just pay his salary. Go take him off the that, that's, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's 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 something that um, there's definitely looking that they're looking at. But they're also looking. They've done some uh, deals with Billy Bean in the past, and there's some some guys out there in Oakland who uh, would definitely help the team. And so there's there's a lot going on there. But as you said, Joe said, everybody said we all know it. If you do it, you're going to have to you know 
there's going to be big there may be they may take somebody like a Brian you know like a Goodwin who's um a bench player right now but he's playing left field on and off uh, platooning uh uh plus some some um minor league guys so yeah you're going to have to wheel the truck up and and go for it but um i i think that they uh they're paying for the price of not doing it in the off season so they have to do it now and there's going to be a bidding war of sorts because, of course, everything at the trade deadline comes down to supply versus demand, and there are a few teams who are in contention who need bullpen help. So I would imagine that in addition to the Nationals, the Arizona Diamondbacks are also probably kicking the tires on any reliever they can get their hands on, and although it would take a lot to make a... um to make them buyers they are in the race if the price is right tampa bay could go get a closer or some bullpen help and they're right in the thick of an al east that well it's very uncertain i think in the last week we've seen the yankees have come back to the pack a little bit the red sox who knows what they are week to week they seem to change drastically in how people perceive them and they're the Rays just consistently plugging away. They're right in that race. They could get involved trying to get a reliever as well, so it could run the price up a little bit. So I think you're right. The Nationals are going to have to pay considerably to get that closer because there are other teams going out for the same position, and they're going to be making the same phone calls. Well, you mentioned no, the Rays. Uh, Brad Boxberger's about ready to come back. and now. You know, he's he's battled injuries and, and you don't know if you can rely on him health wise, but if he near the form that he has shown before, he becomes that eighth inning bridge uh, to get to, to column A as the closer. Now you're beginning to stabilize a little bit. And uh, as you noted, um, together a run and all of a sudden you might look up in the middle of August and go, hey, wait a minute, those guys are you know, they're in the, uh, in the thick of the race and maybe even leaving the division at that point. You know, uh, one, one stat I want, to bring, uh, I want to bring to you guys' attention, I, I think it's hidden. Uh, I came across it the other day. I had to check it twice because it's so outrageous. Um, look, there's a lot of great relief pitchers out there. Um, this guy, Kenley Jansen of the Dodgers, mm-hmm. who – who was a free agent last year, and the Dodgers weren't going to let him out of their sights. And it turns out it was a heck of a decision. Guys, he has 50 strikeouts and zero walks. 50. Uh, this is stunning. Uh, you know, Joe, you remember Cliff Lee? I mean, he's one of those guys that, uh, you know, would strike out 170 and, 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 and walk, you know, 19. This guy's got 50 strikeouts and zero walks. Um, the Dodgers are going to be a tough out in, in the postseason. Uh, they got some great young players. Uh, you know, Bellinger's got 20 homers. He, he didn't come up till late April. Um, that's what a great farm system can do for you. And uh, on the other side, we got my Giants gentlemen who have no prospects. Uh, they're paying a price for winning those three World Series titles, and I can hear all three of you saying at the same time, "Shut up, Kaufman! You got nothing to complain about. You got three rings." <laughs> well, shut up, know. Kaufman! You got nothing to complain about. <laughs> but you know, I don't, I don't know get if you to guys, say that. I'm in Boston. <laughs> I know you guys um, have probably. I I, I was surprised uh, seeing it in person how big a, a man Kenley Jansen is. My God, he is um he is um, yes. uh, an absolute mountain. <laughs> He's enormous, and he throws some smoke. You know yeah, what? I'd like to run something by you, not to plug my own stuff too much, but last week I went on a a spree and ranked all thirty baseball teams based on how entertaining they are to watch night in, night out, and oh. I had. Yeah, I had the Nationals second overall behind only the Houston Astros, who I think are the most entertaining team night to night in baseball. The only problem is both of those teams have their divisions already locked up. So other than the Nationals bullpen problems, there's really no drama unless they're playing another first place team. 
But number three, the Rockies. Number four, the Yankees. And number five, the Dodgers. Does anyone have any issues with those that top five? Mm, not at this point. Uh, Henderson no, I... waiting for the Reds to be mentioned. Um, what'd you say, Ira? Henderson's waiting for the Reds to be mentioned. Uh, oh, he's waiting for the Reds to be mentioned. Okay. Fifteenth. Um, they play reckless baseball, and you gotta love reckless baseball. They might have hit their ceiling, but they're a lot of fun to watch. I had them fifteen. The one that I was that I think I had wrong, I had the Rays at eleven. I should have had them in the top ten. They're they're a fun team to watch. Whether they go too far or not, they've got a lot of home run hitters. They can get outs. They have a fun closer, if not a good bullpen. They're a fun team to watch night tonight, and I I think I might have underranked them, but but I I, I just figured I'd throw that out there. Well the one thing about the Rays I think that it's gonna be their Achilles heel is, uh, you noted they, they were a much more entertaining offensive team this year, and, and we know about their starting pitching, even with all the injuries. But uh, the defense has just been substandard this year, and it, it has cost them dearly. And um, that is something that I don't think you necessarily can fix that during the season. Uh, without tampering with the other uh, elements that, that got you into contention to begin with. Losing uh, Kevin Kiermeyer for two months in, in center field uh, has has really hurt uh, the outfield defense. Even though Malik Smith is an exciting player, uh, he certainly provided some offensive juice as Kiermeyer's replacement, but he's not a gold glover. And I saw that uh, play out a couple of times in the, in the uh, just completed weekend series up at Detroit. Um, they, they have holes on defense and, you know, I think if we write their obit in October, it'll be, uh, that's where we'll, uh, where we will point to. Let me ask you real quick guys um, on a, uh, so a far different subject, but we won't take long because everybody's got to get going here, but have have you all seen uh, the thirty for thirty series on the uh, Celtics and the uh, Lakers? I've seen I half think... of it. It looks like it's about four hours. Well, yeah, it's two parts or three parts. Uh, three parts, I think. Um, okay. The first part, I have a very, very, very strong problem with um, from the Lakers standpoint, and that is. They they basically talk about Chick Hearn. They basically talk about um, a little bit Johnny about Most. Johnny Most, but a little bit about uh, about Jack Kent Cook, and not enough for me about the two guys that that really brought the the team to that point. One is Doctor Ernie Vandeway. That's Kiki Vandeway's dad. Um, passed away recently. Uh, without Ernie Vandeway. It was Ernie Vandeway who talked Bob Short into selling the team to Jack Kent Cook. It was Ernie Vandeway who got Jerry West's contract situation straightened out. It was Ernie Vandeway who took money out of his own pocket and paid Chick Hearn because Bob Short didn't think they needed a radio. It was so the only link. From the time the Lakers got to Los Angeles to the time Jerry Buss took over was Ernie Vandeway. And how they they washed away all of the wonderful things that Ernie Vandeway did to get the team to where it was, to and including his wife, who was an actress. It was she was the one who went out to the studios and brought people to the games. So I mean how you how you do a film based on the rivalry and you don't bring Ernie Vandeway into it is is sacrosanct in my mind. I just it's crazy. Boy, with all the research, Jim, all the research they do beforehand, and they 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 make a glaring omission like that. Shame on them. I mean, they didn't even mention the fact that that um, you know that it was Jack Kent Cook who made them. I mean, he went out. He was the person behind the forum. It was, you know, the Forum Club 
was Jack Ken Cook's concept. Everything was there, but they fast forwarded right to Jerry Buss. And Jerry Buss had the least amount of impact on what happened to the Lakers than any of the people that ran in front of him. So anyway. Oh, I know. Yeah, I'm just tired of looking at Al back light up that victory cigar, Tim. I'm I'm tired of it. There's a statue oh, I'm of him flashbacks over that. Right in Quincy Market, there's a statue of Red Auerbach smoking a cigar, sitting on a bench. <laughs> there used to guys, one last thing. Um where I used to live in Washington um was on Cathedral Avenue and Cathedral in New Mexico, to be honest. Um, there was a little uh, office building on ne- on Nebraska Avenue, and right outside of um, there was Metro, which is Metro Networks, uh, where I used to go up and and do some things. And so one day there was this one door, and I didn't, you know, I looked over at it to see what it was. I thought it was you know a dentist office or something, and it said Red Auerbach. And Red Auerbach's office was in Washington, in northwest Washington. And he used to go down and watch GW practice, and he used to go down and watch Georgetown practice. And that's the way he spent his um, his days off. But there was Red Auerbach, um, you know, still involved in basketball to his last breath. And uh, what a, an amazing man he was, no question about it. Well... There you go, guys. All right, so enough of this maudlin situation but and ranting at ESPN for not getting things right. Stunning. Um, let's talk about social media and what's going on. Let's go to the the man who only is on an even keel with Chris Russo for being a Giants fan, uh, Ira Kaufman. Final thank thoughts you, on your social uh, media. Uh, I want to thank Rich for uh, coming on again. Great guest uh, for college football really knows his stuff. Um, get me on uh, social media, at iKaufman76. Uh, Final comment, gentlemen. Uh, the U.S. Open just finished. Uh, congrats to the winner. He played very well. But I like, Joe, the U.S. Opens when uh, three under par keeps you in contention and you might win at four under par. Uh, it's supposed to be the toughest test in golf, Joe. This weekend, it was not. Can't disagree with that. Uh, my turn? Yeah, okay. go ahead. I'll go ahead. <clears throat> you can reach me at uh, the initial J Henderson Tampa. And I will, uh, I'll kind of pile on that, that comment, Ira. Um, there's a lot of controversy about the U.S. Open the last weekend. Yes, it was, uh, you know, record setting and, and, and all of that, but, I can't believe I'm saying this, but that's, I found myself watching the final round Sunday and going, dad gummit, I wish it was 10 years ago. And that was Tiger Woods out there. And the, you know, I am not a serious dedicated golf fan. I'll be the first to admit it. Uh, But I sure did like watching him in his prime. You know, I'm not, I'm not in denial. He's, he's never coming back. He'll never be, you know, it's over. Um, but man, was he fun to watch. And that was what this, this last weekend meant missed tiger in his prime. What do you think he would have shot last weekend? 30 under par. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's golf's got to find something because right now there is, there's a lot of very fine players out there, but there are no stars. Tim, at least right into your, <laughs> into your rant earlier. Go ahead. Uh, I I think I might have something to say about that. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Tim Writes Sports. First, I'll say Aaron Hills didn't do a good job of protecting the U.S. Open's low or tough scoring. But then again, the weather didn't help. Uh, I'm not sure these pros are ever going to be held back on softened greens when you can hold the ball on those greens. But the most important low number to me this weekend was under 30. The PGA Tour has an embarrassment of riches under 30, and all we do is talk about what it's missing. You have Justin Thomas under 30, Jordan Speed, Ricky Fowler. There's 
a class of amateurs coming up that keeps there's an amateur in contention at the US Open some point in the weekend every year now. There are Brooks Kepka was born in 1990. So you have a generation of guys who were kids when Tiger Woods was coming up, who were inspired by Tiger Woods, and have now they're taking over the PGA Tour, and we better get used to these guys because they have between 40 and 80 major starts left in them when you're looking at how golfers run and how long they're, they're going. And we all miss Tiger, and I don't think we'll ever get anything like that again. And it's a shame that it ended so quickly. And hopefully he'll come back and perform in some right. Maybe is just maybe kind of passing the torch. But I think that it's time for golf to concentrate on what they have. And I don't know how they make all these guys marketable. But they have one of the deepest tours in PGA history. And all they can talk about is what they don't have. And I think it's time to move on. I think the U.S. Open this year was proof of that. Well, that brings to a close yet another edition of Sunshine Boys Podcast. If you don't already subscribe, it's simple enough to do. You can do it right here at Blog Talk Radio. You can do it at the uh, iTunes Store. You can do it at Stitcher and, of course, Google Play. So any one of those four places you can get the Sunshine Boys Podcast. Well, we would like to thank, of course, Rich Morello, who uh, joins us from New York. He is our college football expert. Thanks to Rich. We'd like to thank, of course, the Sunshine Boys themselves, Ira Kaufman, Joe Henderson, and Tim Williams joining us from Boston. So, until next week, for the Sunshine Boys, I'm Jim Williams, your host. Have a wonderful weekend.